Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Lowe Blassingame, and I am your host. If you are here for the first time, welcome. If you are not here for the first time, welcome back. I am so happy that you have decided to join us, and particularly on this episode, because my friend, Kyle Dean Houston, he dropped the knowledge. All right. Kyle Dean Houston is a speaker, author, and coach who is committed to bringing hope into the world. In the mid-1990s, Kyle Houston developed a disturbingly poetic love affair with both needles and the alchemy of creating drugs. Far removed from his small-town values, the drug underground of Kansas City was a world that turned him into first a user and then a notorious meth cook. He prayed for an overdose, but instead he got arrested. Confined to a one-man cell for 23 hours a day, he faced the reality of a 30-year sentence. When his sentence was reduced to nine years, he decided to serve his time and finally go home, or so he thought. Kyle's book, Patchwork Junkie, comes out this Friday, August 7th. With all the heartache and beauty of a tortured soul, Patchwork Junkie is a compelling, up-close portrait of the interior life of a young man yearning to put faith in something real. This memoir follows Kyle's path from a powerful addiction to the violent prison world. It explores the fear of hope and the desperate pain of a mother watching her beloved child fall apart. Straddling a unique line between tragedy and humor, Kyle strikes at the core of what unites us all. Insight and transforming, this harrowing true story is for anyone who has lost a loved one to addiction or incarceration, anyone who has lived through abuse or searched for meaning and simply aches to know they are not alone. Oh, Kyle, just amazing. Absolutely amazing, 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 amazing. I can't say enough. Uh, And I got an advanced copy of this book and um, was genuinely, like I'm not just plugging the book. Seriously, I was in tears just reading the first chapter. It was so just, wow, just wow. Yeah, Kyle talks about being a meth cook and I... (laughs) <laughs> had a lot of questions about how that worked. So I definitely asked him inappropriate questions, but had to know, how do you do that? And uh, yeah, he's just, wow. I don't know. I'm, I sound completely flustered, but he was, Kyle's path is one that most people do not come back from. And they certainly don't come back from with such an amazing attitude and recovery. And I'm just honestly so proud of Kyle. Uh, I didn't know him before this interview, but have, you know, formed a, a relationship, friendship with him since. And I'm just so proud of the work that he's done in this just tremendous story. And Oh, it just gives me so much hope. I hope it gives you hope and it's wildly entertaining. So there's always that. And uh, I just hope you love Kyle as much as I do. So uh, buy this book because it's awesome. Uh, Patchwork Junkie. You can find it Amazon. Just search Patchwork Junkie. Kyle Dean Houston. You can find it. Follow him on all the medias of social and uh, enjoy this ride because it's quite the roller coaster. All right, without further ado, episode 60. Let's do this. (music) 
thank you for reaching out. Uh, it was awesome. I'm sorry that I found it the way I did, but whatever. It's we found it. No, no, no. I think you should be glad that you found it when you did. So I'm I'm just happy to be here, honestly. Me too. Me too. I'm really happy. I have so many questions for you. So here's the thing I love about you, and I've listened to a couple of your podcasts, is that you have this phenomenal sense of humor. And it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of things that are off limits. So I love that. So do me a huge favor and do not pull any of that back because we're talking about serious stuff. Oh, okay? don't worry. I'm I have a hard like I have a hard time if I have to pull that stuff back. So that's why you can't control that stuff. I got it. I keep thinking like this whole cancel culture thing is happening, right? And people from like 20 years ago stuff that they said or did. And I <laughs> I'm so panicked. I was telling people like, I'm, I don't know how I'm not capable of not saying something that will definitely get me in trouble in 10 years. I just found out that you, that you can't say master bedroom because that used to be the master, like that's a slave reference. And like, Oh my God, I'm, I'm, I don't, I don't know what I'm like. This is just so anyway, I've given up. I've let it go. I'm just going to be me. And if I get in trouble in 10 years, I'll deal with it then. Yeah, good luck. Good luck with all that. Because you could lose a lot of sleep over that stuff for sure. Not that it's not not that it's not worth you know acknowledging, but full time job. (laughs) Well, I mean, exactly, exactly. Well, that's where my head goes. My head, my head is a full time job. (laughs) It's a full time job. I love it. Yeah. So first of all, I just want to say that your story is incredible. And what what's actually incredible about it to me is not the stuff that normal people would think is incredible because I get it. Like I get having been through like crazy story, traumatic stuff. What I think is actually incredible, what I really appreciate is that your recovery, you went to prison, you came out, you were very successful you know, kind of beat all the odds. But what's amazing to me is actually that your recovery started after the success, after coming out of prison, after all of those things, because it takes so long to get out of the mental jail that we put ourselves in. And you can, you know, you can be incarcerated, you can, you know, be incarcerated, incarcerated, like you were in in solitary, and you can do all those things. But you know, the prison in your mind is is the scariest place there there will ever be. And you're the only person that can let yourself out. And so that's the key. Like the key, it doesn't all happen just because if I get out of here, then it'll be okay. If I get the job, then it'll be okay. If I get the the wife or the husband, then it'll be okay. And your story is all about that. So I just totally, I dig that. And yeah, I want to hear about your childhood because you grew up in an alcoholic home in Missouri. Miz- oh, wait, Missouri? Uh, it depends on which side of the tracks you're from, but I say Missouri. Okay. Yeah. Missouri. Hey, there's Missouri. a couple comments I wanted to make really quickly. So yeah. uh, you you specifically said, it's amazing that you started, what, what you loved about my story was that I started recovery later on after I got sober, potentially. And the what I would say to all that is it depends on how you define recovery. Certainly, I think that everybody's job, whether you've been addicted to a substance or not, is to gain clarity, is to conquer self, is to do all these things throughout life. And in the process of doing that, I just happened to become a raging 
methaholic, whatever you want to call it, right? I prefer junkie. And I happen to go to prison. I happen to face life twice. I happen to do all those things. But you are right. It never really made sense to me that I wasn't in control because I was succeeding. I was achieving. I was piling up all of this stuff that I could put in a scorecard and say, hey, what do you mean? I'm recovered. But the truth is, I was living in fear, shame, and doubt. And you're absolutely right. I wouldn't necessarily articulate it in the way of recovery, but that's exactly what it is. And it didn't start until two and a half years ago. And it's ongoing until, you know, I'm six feet under. That's for sure. It's a, you know what it is? It's like you, there's so many different, right? You you have to start with physical recovery, right? You have to start with rather physical sobriety, just getting these substances out of your system. But that's just like step step 1.1, you know, and, and then you, what, what you did was you got to that deep recovery and that's that I dig that, like having done this a long time, the deep stuff is where it's at because I don't know. And, you know, we'll talk about this being just having physical recovery sucks. Like just being physically clean and sober without any of the tools, without any of the recovery that is painful because now my 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 substance is gone, my tool is gone, and I'm left with me. <laughs> and that was why I started doing it in the first place. So that deep recovery is is just where like I'm so passionate about that. Yeah, now I'm out on a on a high wire with no net, and I have to look down. That sucks. What what was mm-hmm. I thinking? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Whose idea was this? Yeah. What's this sober business all about? I, I think, I, you know, I certainly hope you read my book, but I, I think you're going to get a real kick, especially your personality. You're going to get a real kick out of the the tongue in cheek philosophical side of the book. And, you know, I just, there's there's parts in it that talk about that. And there's parts in it that talk about why you wouldn't want to get sober. And, you know, it's just, it's uh it's an up and down roller coaster that I really enjoyed writing. So, but I'm doing my best not to steer this conversation and be a good boy. So, oh no, you do, <laughs> you do you. So, so, okay, let's start. So you grew up in Missouri and alcoholic home. What was the, al- what was the home like? So here's, I think it's important to understand. I had a, an alcoholic stepfather. So I I certainly had the classic case of a, a fractured, broken home. You know, everybody played their role really well. Now that we know what they are, we had the enablers, we had the alcoholic, we had the scapegoat, ta-da. We had the family hero, which was my older sister. We had all of those things, but my mom didn't drink a lick. She didn't, she didn't drink at all. So it wasn't necessarily an alcoholic home in the sense that Everybody was just over there drinking all the time. It was an alcoholic upbringing. The entire town of Higginsville. Oh, the town. Would, the flag was planted many, many, many years ago by Germans. And there's, you know, we, we weaved in a, a couple Irish people here and there. And that's what you get, right? This melting pot of a drinking culture. And I love them to death. And I'm not saying everybody's an alcoholic, but, uh, but I'm certainly saying that I wasn't unique in that being my upbringing. But what I had specifically was I had a stepfather who found out early in the game that I was the package deal that he didn't really sign up for. And he and I had a very difficult relationship throughout my childhood where I I loved him. I admired him. I, I get a lump in my throat talking about this. And 
in his way, and I know this now, he loved me as well, but he wasn't good with children and patients. So there was there was a lot of nowadays it certainly is abuse. There was there a lot of that stuff. And my mother was an angeraholic. Um, if that's a term we can throw out there. Rage, rageaholic as well. There we go. Why not? Um, and all of these terms are new. They have to me meetings because, for it. Yeah, no, I and I I'd certainly I, I might be the candidate for some of that stuff, but my my mother's way of coping with anything, what she was most comfortable with was dominating and getting mad. And so yelling was a common occurrence, blah, blah, blah. So that was my upbringing. And I, the, the funny thing about it is I have two siblings. I have a younger brother who's six years younger than me and a sister that's two years older, completely different childhoods. Right. You know, right. And I'm the middle kid that looks exactly like the son of a bitch my mom married before my stepdad came into the picture and like to break bones, like to, you know, I'm talking about my own. I like to jump things with bikes and have stitches every day and all that sort of stuff. So I was a handful for sure. You were a young boy. <laughs> I was a boy. That's true. Um, but in my small town, you did drink. It wasn't frowned upon. And I started drinking and smoking weed at the same age of 13. I was in my class. I was the athlete, um, you know, football, track, wrestling, all of that stuff. Letter jacket, four-year letterman. School seemed to come easy. Uh, everything that I wanted to do really seemed to come easy. So I didn't understand weakness. And when I got into my mid-20s and really started getting addicted to drugs, when it went from recreational and fun to something life-threatening, I had no tools in my toolbox to understand any of that because now something wasn't easy. Now I was weak. But here I am in my head and I'm like, holy shit, I do not understand weakness. I wasn't prepared for this. And certainly now looking back on it 25, 30 years later – because I believe in purpose, because I believe in a higher power, because I believe in all of those things, it was my purpose to get a crash course in humility and forgiveness and empathy and understanding. And oh boy, did I get it. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's uh, I, I, I relate so much to what you're saying because I experienced, you know, one of the heart, one of the things that I really struggled with was getting sober was that I had always used my brain, kind of like you're talking, my brain or my skills to overcome or figure things out, right? It had always worked for me to use my brain to logically think something through and achieve. And with sobriety, you can't do that. You don't use that. And so I had no other skills and something that had always worked for me in school and, you know, moving, getting those achievements didn't work in recovery and didn't work. Nobody cared. Recovery doesn't care how smart I am or what I know or any of that. And that was such a huge challenge. And you come across it, you, you, you come face to face with these things in yourself that you don't have the tools for. And it's terrifying. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it certainly is terrifying. I don't know that those are the terms I would use, but um, I'm at this point, just simply talking about the throes of addiction. I'm not even talking about recovery. I don't even have the tools to understand what's going on. And because I'm introspective, because I'm constantly diving in and, and putting labels and compartmentalizing, and you know, that's the way all of our brains work, but but mine's overtime. I had no reference 
for what was going on. And it literally, uh, in a very short period of time, became hopeless. It was hopeless. It was like every single day I continue to go further. And as I reflect on the things that I'm putting off and the hearts that I'm breaking and the fact that my mom hasn't spoken to me for six months and thinks I'm dead and I'm not doing anything about it, I think that my only exit strategy is going to be to have an overdose or, or commit suicide. And this happened in a year to a year and a half period of time. And how, how did you make that transition from like, walk me through the transition from four-year letterman to when you started using meth, like how, what, what happened? How did it go from recreation to necessity? Sure. So to abbreviate all of that, uh, you know, I, I graduated from high school, was certainly expected to go to college. You know, I think a lot of friends completely thought that I would be highly successful at something. And I went through four or five years of literally quitting everything because it just wasn't fun, right? That that became my MO. So I quit college. I joined the Navy. I got out of the Navy in 10 months. You know, I just did all these things and finally decided I'm I'm successful at making money. I'm going to become an entrepreneur. And so I started a carpet store in Kansas City. I had eight employees. And in between that period of graduating from high school, you know, having adventures, doing recreational drugs, everything from LSD to, you know, meth and crack cocaine. I mean, I tried it all. I loved it all. I get to this point where I'm highly responsible for eight people's lives and everything looks really good. And one of my installers, carpet installers that actually puts the the carpet in the house his ex-wife was a meth cook's girlfriend, and this is 95-ish. And, you know, I'd always had something that wasn't pure, and it took – it was really hard to get, and I couldn't get endless supplies of it. And that was – now that I look back on that was my, was my saving grace. So when I met her and she decided I was a lot of fun – and she could never run out. And therefore, by extension, I could never run out. It was a perfect storm for addiction. And so that's essentially what changed. But there was a lot of other uh, circumstantial things that happened in life that maybe continue to run back to the pipe. How old were you at the point where you meet the, the, um, the cook's girlfriend? I was somewhere between 25 and 26. Okay. Okay. So you meet this woman and things have been prop, like increasingly increasing use. Like would, would it before that, would you consider it recreational or just like heavy drug use? Recreational. Okay. So before that it was recreational. I, I, overnight okay. I went from recreational to habitual. Mm-hmm. And overnight. so you get in with this, you get in with this woman and what are you telling yourself as, as things are increasing, as things are probably falling apart, I'm assuming. They're falling apart. They certainly are. So in the beginning, let's just talk first two weeks for a second. First two weeks, I'm telling myself this is a party, right? Okay. First two weeks, okay. I'm like, yeah. wow, this is awesome. Look, you know, we're all high and and we don't have to go look for it and it's free. You know, it, it seemed like a lot of fun. Right, this works. You get on the right. other end of that first two weeks and it's like, mm, these aren't really my people. Um, you know, the 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 fun um, friends that I love to death aren't coming around as much. And I really, I'm not growing my business. So I want to stop. I call her up and I tell her, don't come over. Don't come over tonight. 
I don't really want to do this anymore. I think you're a great person, but but that's it. And she breaks into my house with two or three people. I, I go out to a bar and I have a meal and a couple beers and I see some old friends and I tell them what I've been up to. And it's a joke. Like it's just all of an adventurous story. And I come home, walk into my house and there's three people and what she's one of them. And I'm mad. And it, I'm like, what are you doing breaking into my house? And instantly, I hate admitting that I'm this weak. She lights the pipe and she hands it to me. And immediately I'm okay with it. Now, from that moment, I start to realize, oh my God, this is deeper than just a funny story. This is deeper than just an ornery thing that can be a little trouble. And we go from that to graduating to an addict that's not very fun to her anymore. She decides she's going to cut me off. And I'm the ambitious person that I am decide nobody's going to cut me off. I'm going to teach myself how to cook it. So I'd met enough people. I got the chemicals together and I taught myself how to make meth. Okay. So let's, let's stop there. I have some questions. Okay. <laughs> you go ahead. All right. I'm just curious because I smoked a lot of, I, so, you know, this is the kind of addict I, I love it. I've smoked a lot of meth, but I really don't like it. Okay. All right. <laughs> so, I, I could, I just, I kept, I kept feeling like every time I would do it, it, something different would happen. Nothing different ever happened. But so the chemicals that you use to cook meth, yeah. it felt like I was maybe ingesting Drano. I don't know. <laughs> I probably was. What kind of, what's actually in it? Well, I mean, what's actually in it depends on the cook. I mean, you, you, so there's lots of different recipes and, you know, I don't, I don't get methamphetamine quarterly anymore, so I don't keep up on what they're doing. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm this unsubscribed. Yeah. <laughs> so, but the recipe that we used, we had three main ingredients, which was phosphorus. Uh, you, you had red phosphorus, you had black iodine and you had ephedrine and ephedrine's never changed. And in the process of extracting, so you put those together, you create this endothermic reaction, and a hydrocarbon attaches itself to this thing, and blah, 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 blah. Then the Drano that nobody used, but I, I know what you're talking about, the household chemicals that you use yeah, yeah. are what you use to extract from the oils and start to filter and blah, blah, blah. So to make this really simple to understand, if somebody doesn't take their time and care about that last process, then you are going to get those household chemicals in your system and in your Got it. So that, that okay. Oh, so they're, they're not actually supposed to be in there, but they're used as the extraction kind of like crack where, what are they? I yeah. 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 It's kind of like crack. I, I imagine I, I've never, I've never cooked crack. I've never done that. I've watched it. I've watched it. I used to go to this guy, he would get this big load of cocaine and I would try to get there before he, cause I, I wanted the cocaine and I would try to get there before they made it into crack. And so I would go and watch and just kind of watch these. You kind of, you know how it's like, it's surreal, right? Like people are like a crack house, Ashley, how could you, oh, how could you, you know, do and it's, you just end up in these situations and you're like, I guess we're cooking crack <laughs> here. You know, I don't know. I don't know how this just happened. I guess I'm, 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 I'm here. Well, there's that. Just, uh, yeah. Let's yeah. see how high we can get off that. What the heck? So you, um, you wrote, you, you know, your so own. Funny. You are so funny. <laughs> I, I have to tell you, normally I tell people, I usually don't talk about this and we're talking about spiritual things, 
But I got to tell you, I usually don't go into this much depth about my my fun stuff. <laughs> so this is I know. maybe I'll I'll uh, I'll do my best not to relapse during this conversation. But <laughs> yeah, don't do that. Don't do that. I won't. No relapsing. So you you know as it's it's the perfect example of you know where where you focus your attention you know, what, when, if you focus on the problem, the problem grows. If you focus on the solution, the solution grows that works in recovery. And it, it, that same idea is, is applicable to using. And when we are in the throes of our addiction, we're going to focus on getting whatever that situation, whatever the, the setup is that we need. That's, and, and if we have entrepreneurial skills, if we're, you know, whatever it is, those things come into play because we're again, focused on, creating something to, you know, survive in this, in this addiction, right? So a lot of the skills, it does not surprise me that your entrepreneurial skills that have helped you grow and and be successful were useful back then. It's just the the goal was different, right? We changed our goal. Well, I I would take it a step further. and, And this is really, really important and something that I talk about. And that is that, yes, the entrepreneur skills the ability to meet and talk and do all those other things helped me infiltrate the drug game. There's no doubt about it. But inside the drug game, I saw things about myself and possibility and what I'm capable of achieving if I'm hyper-focused on something that absolutely lent itself to the success side of my story. There's no doubt about it. And what I want everybody to understand, because typically you get on the other side of drug addiction, raging drug addiction and it's all about guilt and shame and you're not worth the crap and what what skills do i have and i got news for you you have the competitive advantage because you have literally woken up every day and made miracles happen you woke up with no money no place to sleep and you still managed to get high on a really expensive drug and yeah, I mean, come on. It's no, it's, it's so, oh my gosh. I was thinking about this the other day. It's so true. I, and I was a, a teenager. No, you know, no real income. I have, I managed to have an eight ball a day cocaine habit at a certain point. Like it's, it's, and you know, that was before, you know, dating the dealer kind of deal. Uh, and, and, and I yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. It was my favorite was it show. Date the dealer. <laughs> date the dealer. I was like, why are we not dating the dealer? Let's just date the dealer. No, I I we figure out um it's sometimes it's interesting. I'll see people, um, you know, homeless people or whatever, and I'll think to myself, like, how do they get high? And I forget how we find we are so resourceful and Again, it's like, what is it focused on? And you take the skills that you had, you know, becoming a meth cook and you put those into good, positive, you know, mainstream society and they're, they're wonderful skills. It's, it's about having that internal shift, obviously. And, and, you know, that I think that at the point where you are as deep into, um, the drug game as you are, what's interesting that I've seen, and I'm curious if this resonates for you the people that I know that were really into dealing, selling, making drugs, that became a high in and of itself. Uh, that process, that that fast life, the being the it guy, the that kind of stuff, that was actually a part of the addiction. What did, what, did that happen for you at all? 
so it certainly resonates. Let me let me qualify that. Um, and and this is this is all a part of the book. And I'm so glad you brought it up because the addiction to to making methamphetamine became the thing I couldn't pull away from. And for for most people, they think, oh, making meth is a means to get high. And for me, it literally was getting high became the means to make meth, and it it reversed itself. And I was not addicted to the power. I, I, you know, I, I, because I'm introspective, I never confused. I don't know. I, you, you don't have self-esteem if you're on drugs, but I had enough self-worth to say this isn't real power. I didn't get addicted to the money because it just was the thing that flowed in and out of my life by the piles, and I didn't care. Right? What I got addicted to was being alone in the lab, making it better watching it you know you would create this universe inside this flask and and watching it and experimenting and doing all those things and realizing that you know it's it's crazy to say it this way now but th- these are your subjects you're creating life and you, i started to tell myself that this is art this is spiritual this is something god's okay with Forget the destruction that happens after I make this, right? Because that's separate from what I'm doing right now. What I'm doing right now is this insane God complex, and I'm creating life. And that was an addiction that um, that haunted me forever. I dream about it. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I yeah, never. That's, that's really. I, I just got to say this. Never thought much about it after I walked out of prison. Right. I was busy. <laughs> I had a career to build until I started writing the book. And when I started writing the book, I started to watch myself and I started to, you know, pay attention to what my mind was traveling, how it was traveling and what it was thinking about. And I wrote these poetic chapters about of cooking meth and what I was lost in. And I, I did the same thing with shooting, shooting with needles the first and second time I did it because it's, it's magic or you wouldn't do it. Right. right. I mean, my God, right. let's face it. If you didn't right. like, right. yeah, no, I mean, there's, there's, that's, you know, I always say like the, the, the big problem with the dare campaign, uh, you know, that whole, that just say no is, you know, drugs are bad is that we don't acknowledge that they do something for people that they like. We don't, you know, we can, we can acknowledge that there's something that comes out of it that people like, which is why they do Well, there's the interior world and there's the exterior world and don't confuse the two. Just because I look like Skeletor and, you know, I have zits all over my face and tracks up my arm. Don't think for one second that's my self-image inside. Yeah. Oh, no. Because inside I'm invincible. Definitely not. And I got this. Yep. As long as I'm hot. Got this. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. And, And also meth makes, meth, my experience at least, I came up with even crazier, like when I was shooting heroin, uh, I wasn't exactly like with it and coming up with ideas and, you know, thinking through things. It was just kind of, a, there's a lot of drooling involved. And, uh, and, and when you, when you're doing meth, there's like a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, you know, thinking of ideas and having introspection and, you know, that wasn't my jam. So I'm sure that didn't, that you didn't hurt that the that you were <laughs> on uppers when this no, was happening. It, did, did you ever see um, Orange County where Jack Black? Did you ever see Orange County the movie? Oh, you got to see it. Jack Black's a drug addict, and he's talking about all these ideas. It would be so much funnier if you would have seen it. But that's exactly what meth's like. 
all the ideas. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, uh, lots of ideas and lots of unfinished projects. I, I just want you to know that that's not all it is. Certainly isn't all it is. I mean, you get to a point to where it doesn't matter how much meth you do, you're not drowning out the the voices and the noise and the shame and the guilt, right? You can do it for a little while while you're super high, but, um, but by, I mean, the, the worst thing that could ever happen is running out. The minute you run out when you're at that point, suicide is the only thing you think about. And that's, I want to make sure is clear, is what the book talks about, is that phenomenon, right? We talk about the mystical awareness and this beautiful thing that happens when I'm cooking and, you know, what happens inside my head, but that's very short-lived because the vast majority of my life for that two years was walking around thinking, how am I going to die? You know what? And being really, really disappointed that meth wasn't going to kill me. That was, that was a, a damn shame. That was actually what I always talk about. You know how people talk about like, I was going to die and that's why I got sober. And one of the, the thoughts I had was I'm not dying. Like this is like, it's just getting worse. Like I felt like I was going to live in this purgatory that the drugs weren't, you know, killing me quickly. It was just going on and on and bad things and bad things and bad things. And I was living through them all. And that felt worse that the idea that I would have to live in that purgatory felt worse, felt scarier than just dropping dead. Cause dropping dead was a, I don't know about for you, but dropping dead for me was a, a real consideration. I mean, it did, it was not like, Oh my gosh, I, I could drop dead here. I mean, I was well aware that that was a high probability, but that wasn't scary. It was staying alive and having all the chaos and the things go wrong and not dying. That really, it was more than a consideration. It was my goal. It was what I was trying to do. I mean, all the way to a point to where I, I literally almost hung myself. You don't know much about Kansas city, but there's the hood is, is Northeast. And I was in Northeast and yeah, I was looking up the rafters. I had what I thought I was going to hang myself with. It was all going to happen. And I had this moment of, I wouldn't call it clarity, but this moment of just right at the end, who's going to find me? What's this going to do? Am I going to be forgotten? Like, is this the best thing? And then I, I got scared of myself because I was so close to doing it that luckily I ran upstairs and somebody got me super high and we got through that. But that was the plan. I want to say something just because it's really important to me. I'm so glad that you're here. I'm so glad that you're sober and that you have the insight that you do. Your your um, your energy is very touching to me, and your compassion is is um, it's special. So I'm glad that you didn't die. Okay, that's the Thank way I was you. feeling a second Thank ago. You. Thank you. That's that's you make me cry. I um, I feel the same way. I feel the same way, and uh, and what I thought when you said that you ran upstairs and someone got you high was, oh yeah, drugs saved my life for a long time. It allows you to kick the can down the road. Yep. Until Until you you can't. can't. Lucky for me, very lucky for me, the universe had a whole new plan and I got arrested because I wouldn't be here. There's no doubt about it. When you, you mentioned something a second ago where people have the wherewithal to realize if I don't get sober, I'm going to die. That's a conversation you have when you're trying to get sober. That's not the conversation you get to have when you're in the throes and when you're a junkie, because it's either you die or you keep using like this till you die. That's your conversation. 
That's it. Right. It ends. It is the same, same way. way. And you know, you you talk yourself into believing it's better for everybody. I, I think that's suicide in general, right? But yeah. that was my yeah. mindset. Yeah. This is better for my family. This is better for my child. This is better clearly for me. You know, what am I going to do? Hang out for another 20 years and, and run this reputation into the ground? I'm Kyle Houston, right? I'm the football player. I can't keep doing this. Let's die. So, and and I'm also glad I didn't do that. And I'm also glad I went through it. Very glad. Because I don't think I would be the guy that's able to tell you how important it is that you're alive and that you care and that you're loving. I don't think I would be the guy to understand people's hardships and weakness. I, and maybe I would have gotten there another way, but I certainly got there this way. And it's important to me. And, it, and it's such a big part of who I am to be that empathetic, loving guy that will also kick you in the ass and tell you to get your, your shit together, right? That's a big part of my personality. But the loving side and the caring side and the understanding side, I wouldn't trade for the world, for the world. I do want my seven years back. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. What, so, so you went to, um, so you get arrested and what, what's the charge? Well, so it's, it's many things, but the, the, the night that I got arrested where it counted, it was trafficking in the first degree. And it was a crap ton okay. of chemicals. Not a whole lot of finished product, but it didn't matter. Missouri had created all these new laws, and you might as well have been standing there over a dead body with a murder. No, actually, that's better. You get less time for murder. So I was facing 30 years with no parole, which means you're doing every day. And it was a real thing. It it wasn't one of those situations where they're like, ah, let's throw the A felony at him, and then you know, we'll, we'll negotiate a C felony and he'll get, you know, it wasn't like that. Right. So I went through that. I went through the entire project. Look, you look like you have a question. Sorry. No, no, no. You make these um, these great faces that, you you know, I'm like, Oh, (laughs) you're arrested. You're, you, you go to your arraignment. They tell you the first time, the first time you realize that you're looking at 30 years every single day, like what's that? What does it feel like to hear that? Oh, so at the time I heard it, I, not none of that. It, everything, every, reality didn't exist yet. Okay, I'm coming off the streets. I'm shooting. But you have to remember, I have an, a bottomless bag. I make I make the dope, and I'm doing right. seven to eight shots a day, fifty cc's, and I mean I'm blowing my brains out enough to kill a mule seven to eight times a day, every day. And I, and I took I took the responsibility of having an overdose pretty serious. And so when I get arrested, I can't pick my head up off the pillow, let alone think I'm not conscious. When I finally get the energy to walk across the street to the courthouse, you know, cuffed and shackled and everything else, I'm still trying to figure out how do I make bail? How do I get out of here? How do I how do I control and manipulate and lie my way through this thing? Because I'm not going down without swinging. So none of it registered. It it will later on in my story. But at this point, no, I got this, right? I mean, worst case scenario, I make a bunch of meth, I, I make bail, and I go to Europe. And, live, you know, I'm, and there's all kinds of ideas. Right, right, right. Okay, okay. So we're, you're still. And what did you actually get convicted of? So... We're going to, we're going to leapfrog a whole bunch of the cool stuff, but 
about a month before a month or so before I get I I spend 18 months waiting to get sentenced. And during that 18 months, I, yeah, there's a lot more to the story. I spend six months, five months getting sober. I start to recognize my own thoughts. I start to see the value system that I was raised with start to come back into my considerations. And I tell myself, if I can make, if I can get a change of venue, which means I go to another county, they've got a better judge there. I can probably make bail. I can get out and I can fix this, right? So that's exactly what I do. And I get the change of venue. It took me five months to get it. I'm there for a week. He gives me bail. My mom and dad scrape up the money. I get out. It wasn't a small amount of money. And within 24 hours, I've got a needle in my arm and I'm arrested again for a possession of a 16th. And I make bail there because they don't know I, it's a different county. They don't know that I've got this other case. And I get out and I just go right back, just jump right back in, but worse. And um, just start making meth and start shooting and doing all the other stuff, trying to make enough money to get a really great lawyer. And one night, I because I just wasn't thinking, I shot a bunch of air into my arm. And I couldn't figure out if I was going to die or not because I'm high. And so I, the girl that I'm with at the time, God, I sound so horrible. I'm really a good guy. Um, but the friend that I'm with at the time... <laughs> runs me up to a pay phone and I tell her, call the hospital and see if this is okay. I can't tell if it was 20 cc's or 40 worth of air that I shot in there because I didn't pay any attention. And it's just knucklehead stuff, right? And she calls the cops and they come and pick me up. I've got a warrant out for my arrest. I go right back to that county that gave me bail that I was there for five months or you know that I got the change of venue. And, and I end up in a single cell by myself for the next year or less, 23 hours a day in a cell by myself and uh, in county jail. And, and that's when everything hit. That's when there wasn't a single person that was ever going to come to see me. That's where my mom, I had finally burned a bridge I didn't think it was possible to burn. That's when I was alone. That's when it all set in that it, that I was going to be insignificant, never get to contribute. I had a six-year-old son at the time. I was never going to get to be his dad. That was the lowest of lows that I could ever wish on anybody or imagine in my life. And I spend all of that time, and I have this incredible spiritual awakening because I'm there. I'm stripped of all distractions anything that has to do with status or girls or money or cars, none of that matters, right? I'm in a cell. I'm wearing the same digs, the clothes every day. And so I turn to God and I want to know why. How can this happen? I'm smarter than this. I'm more important than this. You can use me better than this. Why does this happen? And I decide I'm not going to get lost in what religion's right. I'm not going to get lost in anybody else's philosophy. I'm going to approach God with what I truly believe. And I broke it down to three things. One, I truly believe that there's a God. I truly believe that there is order in the universe and that there's a consciousness that overlooks this. Two, I believed that if I asked that being for truth, with the purest of hearts, and I listened, 
and didn't inject any expectations that I would get it. And three, if either one of those two things were wrong, we're fucked anyway. So what's it matter? Those were my, that was my spiritual beliefs. And that's what I, I went in with. Now, Jesus, Hare Krishna, Buddha, Muhammad, all of that stuff, let's put that on a shelf because it doesn't matter right now because that doesn't feel like truth. That feels like a, a, a steering wheel for a bunch of other people. And what ended up coming to me was two books. One was the Edgar Casey Primer, and the other was the 12 Steps. And still to this day, I could not tell you, maybe it's not in my memory, and it certainly didn't fall from the sky, but I can't tell you how they ended up in my cell, but they did, and I devoured both of them. And the 12 Steps for me became this, it wasn't about sobriety, it wasn't about drugs or substances, it was this new blueprint for spirituality and how we should all live our lives. And I had this complete shift that everything that mattered, there was two things, love and oneness, and that we're all in this thing together. And I'm telling you, if there's a definition for reborn, I had it in that cell and completely dedicated my life to something I don't know that I could ever dedicate my life to without this experience, which is why I hold it so dearly in my heart. But it all became about love and oneness. I got some new definitions and a new relationship with God and my divinity within, which is far more important than dogma and theology and resurrections and all that other stuff. This was about the thing inside myself that knows the best, that loves the most, that has purpose and gifts to give the world. And I got in tune with that. And then now we're back to your question. A month or two before my sentencing, the case went weak. And my lawyer comes to me and says, hey, cop didn't have any reason to pull you over. You, you didn't have any busted taillights. There was nothing in your car. They didn't have any business walking over to the trucks you were heading to and start pulling. Fruits of the poison is fine. We can beat the case. And I'm like, oh, we can beat the case. <laughs> that sounds pretty cool. Thank you, God. I'm into this, right? I mean, this, this is like, you can't imagine how I feel. Now I feel, I feel like God does, like my life is important. But if I'm going to honor this thing that I just went through, if I'm going to honor taking responsibility, which is a huge part of the 12 steps, then I want to know what they're offering me because I can't, I can't, A, I can't walk away from this because I'm culpable and B, I can't walk away from this because I saw what happened last time. It took me 24 stinking hours to have a needle back in my arm. So I got some shit to work on. And so I took a nine-year sentence in the state of Missouri. It, it wasn't going to be every day. The first time down, I was going to do a third of that. And since I'd already done 18 months, in my mind, I'm going to prison to do 18 months, walk out, be the father I was meant to be with this newfound zen, and I'm going to live happily ever after. Well, here's where it gets really crazy. I tell my son I'm coming out. I tell him to get a football, right? He's eight and a half, nine at this point. And about, I don't know, it's hard to say because you never know when you're going to get paroled out. But a month or two before I was going to get, before I was eligible for parole, the feds came in and indicted me and I was facing life. And they shipped me off to Leavenworth, Kansas. And this is something that not even a whole lot of people in the legal community understand, but they tried me for the exact same evidence. But instead of calling it a trafficking, they called it conspiracy and they grouped in all these other people. And now I'm facing life, and I spend the next two years of my life thinking I'm going to do life in prison again. And I go through that experience twice. 
And it, it gets crazy after that. It was violent. I got jumped by three guys in a cell. I mean, there was just all these ups and downs. And it really tested that Zen and those beliefs like you wouldn't believe. You so you were in some of the most violent prisons. I, I have to be country. really careful about uh, that because I know your listeners probably understand violent prisons. I was not in Sing Sing. I was not, I can't right now, I can't remember California's. I was in a level five holding facility, which houses everybody, right? So it's as violent as it's it can get, but it's different. But yes, it was violent enough. Trust me. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hi, it's Ashley, your host. I'm so excited to announce a brand new support group at Lion Rock called Community. Community is a recovery support group where all people in the pursuit of peace in mind and body may find hope and healing through connections with each other. Community is open to everyone and meetings are available online daily, Monday through Saturday. For more information, please visit our website, www.lionrockrecovery.com and click on meetings tab. Come and join us. So, okay, let me just tell you a little bit about community. Community is awesome in part because I helped write it. So I just want to tell you a little bit about the belief. So this is a place where people can come. doesn't matter what you're recovering from. doesn't matter how you define your recovery, your sobriety, your abstinence, what have you. And I just want to give you a little snapshot. Here are the beliefs of the program. We believe that finding peace and recovery requires a personal path and that recovery looks different for different people. We celebrate the diversity of paths and traditions. We believe that our lives can be different from what they are today, and we can get there with the support of community when we ask for help. We believe that we can change our lives if we can conquer our fears by doing the work. We believe that recovery requires renewal and depends on personal growth. Like many people before us, we believe you get what you give. We give positive energy. We believe that our inner pain must be released for us to find freedom, and the pain is often a signal there's more work to do. The work may include repairing the damage we caused. Our common bond began with our desire to relieve our pain at all costs and continues with the cultivation of our healing through our connections to each other. Our common goal is the pursuit of peace in mind, body, and spirit. Yeah, yeah. So it's awesome. The people are awesome. The meetings are awesome. And I highly recommend you go and check that out. Please, again, go to www.lionrockrecovery.com, hit meetings tab, and you will see an exhaustive list of community recovery support group meetings, including ones for LGBTQ and upcoming ones for the podcast book club. Stay tuned. Why do you think that the violence is so intense, particularly in the holding in the holding prisons versus the prisons where people are doing life? Well, the one thing that's going to curb the propensities towards violence for a convict is thinking that if they mind their P's and Q's, it's going to look good on their case. So sometimes it helps when you're in a holding facility and everybody's getting sentenced, but sometimes people don't, they, you know, they can see the roadmap, they can read the tea leaves. Why are we going to be nice, right? I know what's going to happen. They're going to lock me up and throw me away forever. And they they misconstrue what other people are doing as being soft. So there might be some more violent experiences. But the reason it was violent where I was 
it's because it was full of convicts and <laughs> it's just that simple. And, and I'm not, I'm telling you, I'm not a violent guy. I will, at that point in my life, I will fight because I don't want my stuff to get taken. I don't want to be picked on, but I'm certainly not the guy that's going to walk around and start it. But I will tell you, not every convict is like that. Not, not everybody is. And I want to make sure everybody knows good people go to prison and really nice, kind people end up in prison. And I had some incredible relationships that I built that are lifelong with people from prison. Yeah. So you, two years, you think you're doing life, you do, then you get this, the seven year sentence, or I'm sorry, the nine year sentence. Did they drop the life charge and then so just give you the nine years? I got the nine years. See, this, it's, it, it gets convoluted. I got nine years in the state. And then when I was about to get out of the state after right. doing my three years, right? Cause I was going to do three on the nine. I right. got indicted federally and the feds were, I was right. facing life and there's a turn okay. of events that happened. There was the grace of God. Okay. And there was a lot of things that happened towards the end of my sentencing again, where I ended up with a seven year sentence and I, and I did Got seven it. years okay. behind bars. So doing seven years behind bars, how does that change a person? Well, I can tell you how it changed me, right? I mean, I'll say this. There's zero chance you're going to go into prison, especially your first time, and not come out changed. Whether that's for the worst or the better, you know, that's up to you. But you're not going to come out the same person. No stinking way. Why? Why? Well, I mean, it's it falls along the same lines as, you know, you lie around with dogs, you're going to get fleas. Right. I mean, you're you're submerged. First of all, it's a combination of a lot of variables. Right. But you're submerged in a world where almost every conversation is how you're going to do your next crime better or how you're victimized or what the system's about. I mean, you don't have a lot of Anthony Robbins type people hanging out in prison ready to build your spirits. Right. So you're hanging out with a lot of people that are disgruntled already. They feel like they've been victimized. They're mad about the time they're doing. On the outside, you've got people forgetting about you. On the inside, you're getting older. You're realizing that your life is passing you by. You also have guards and case managers and all the people there that automatically assume the minute you show up that you're manipulating them and that you're bad and that you are trying to get one over. So they treat you like shit because they don't want to be the sucker. So you have this perfect storm of lowering your self-worth inside an environment where everybody just hates and angry and you know can't wait to get out and do this thing better and oh by the way let's face it most of the people most of the people that go aren't necessarily the upper echelon of the pecking order out on the outside a lot of them had really traumatic childhoods you know i mean it, it's just it's all of those things so you're not going to live in that environment being locked up and come out the same. It takes a really, really strong person to hold on to the boy their parents raised them to be or the girl their parents raised them to be. And that's the challenge, right? Now, for me, since I faced two life sentences, there, I, I'm not impervious to how that makes me feel. The state and federal government wanted to lock me up and throw me away. Sorry, lock me up and throw away the key. And whether you outwardly articulate that or not, it affects how you feel about yourself. Like I'm that bad or everybody sees me as that bad. And so when I walked out, I was so insecure. I was so scared. 
I had this, I had this situation where day one at the halfway house, go get your soap, Kyle, go get your shampoo. I walk over to a convenience store, gather it all up, thinking nothing. I'm not scared. I'm not thinking anything about it. I, I'm certainly thinking, oh, I can do this. You know, I'm doing all that. But I gather everything up, soap, shampoo, toothpaste, get ready to walk to the counter, and I freeze. Palms go sweaty. There is a, a girl that's not even five feet tall, probably not 100 pounds, sitting there, and I'm so scared. I have a panic attack that I'm doing everything wrong, that she can see right through me, that she knows what I am, and I can't do this. And I almost don't buy the stuff. That's day one. That's the way I walked out. You can't see that when you're on the inside. It's crazy. Yeah, I mean, it makes complete sense. It's interesting. I didn't think about the I didn't think about the the self esteem aspect of it uh, in terms of what this how you feel in the system because you know I think about it from the trauma perspective. But yeah, the self esteem perspective of like your value. Period. End of story. And that wears on a person. It, 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 it does more than wear on a person. And with me, again, with me, I went from not really dealing with being a junkie. Like, let's not mince words. I wasn't an addict. I was a junkie. Okay. And I didn't deal with that. I didn't deal with the suicide stuff. I was white knuckling my way through that seven years of prison. So now I've got all that pent up, plus the self-worth issues. Plus, I'm 35 years old, and holy shit, I should have been so much more at this point, and I know I was expected to be by everybody. So now there's that pressure, and I walk out of prison, scared to death, scared to death, and nobody understands, right? No, In my environment, like there was nobody to share this with. Like Certainly, my mother and my sister would listen, but what point of reference do they have for what I'm going through? What about the other people coming out? Um, my philosophy was I wasn't going to have a thing to do with any of them until I had my shit together. There was no way I was ever going back to prison. And if there was, I wouldn't even Facebook friend three years later, anybody that I'd done time with for the simple fact that I didn't know where it would lead. I was committed. I was committed. Yeah. So how do you get to you? You The first day you have this, you know, you have this panic attack then you get a job as a telemarketer. How do you go from there to being an executive at a company? Yeah, so, I mean, the end result of it all is, you know, a, a decade later from being that scared guy walking out of prison, I'm the vice president inside a $2 billion publicly traded company. And, you know, from one end to the other, it was it was a series of micro decisions. It was a series of continual self-education. I mean, I, I felt really lucky in the sense that Google existed and that I surrounded myself with people that would, would allow me to learn, right? I mean, I, I gravitated towards people that would teach me things and I met my wife and look, I know that that's a trite thing to say, but my wife is, she's an angel. She's the opposite of me. She's smart and she cares deeply and oh my God, that's all I needed. So there's a big difference between walking out scared to death and being insecure and not having any confidence. I still had confidence that I was going to get it together. I still had a bulletproof belief that I was going to find a way to climb back up on top. I just had no idea how it was going to happen. And I was scared of everybody that was around me. So I just worked through all of that stuff every single day. And when you're doing it, 
Like I went from I went from that moment to two and a half years later, I was already the director of North American sales for a startup company. And, uh, you know, that two and a half years to me when I was living it seemed like 20. And uh, all these achievements that I got through, they seemed like they took forever and I was impatient. But it was two and a half stinking years. Right. So to me, living it, it just it just like my head was on a swivel. I was humble enough to do work most people wouldn't do, and I was committed to work 18 hours a day to fall asleep with a with a laptop in my lap and wake up with it there too. Like that's that's what I did to catch up. How did you so one of the things that's so hard for people coming out of prison aside from all the things that you said is is the reentry in terms of getting a job. And so even, you know, let's say that you have someone give you a job they give you a chance, they see your record, fine, but then you apply to the next job, they're going to look at your record. And so it, and, and it goes on. How, how did that, uh, or did that have any effect on you in terms it of- It had a huge effect on me because I hit it. Because I, I not only had to work twice as hard of every, as everybody and learn, become a student of the game and learn it as I went, I also had to hide my past from everybody. And it became, a, 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 every day I'm juggling all of this stuff. When I when I was first promoted to director of North American sales, part of my territory was Canada. And so I couldn't get into Canada because I was on parole. And, <laughs> and so I went from, you know, five minutes of being, yeah, look at me. It comes with a raise and I'm important and I've earned this and somebody sees it all to holy shit, they're going to find out. How did they well, not find out? I hired somebody to manage that. And I never, I never went up there, but I made sure that we were making our numbers. I made sure that I created a way. I became, I became more resourceful than I was as a drug addict because I was now driven by this shame and fear that I was going to get caught. And it became my superpower. Right. How did you evade them finding out that you were on parole in terms of the- They, they, they didn't the do the checks. checks. I, I went to startup. I had to I had to take jobs that didn't have an HR department that was robust. So so my options were limited. Got it. But okay. turns out it's the best thing that ever happened to me as far as a career. Yeah. So people, I, I I would imagine you'd be in situations where people are having conversations or you know, and they have no idea your background or any of that. Maybe they're, you know, I've had this situation where people are saying derogatory things about people in prison or people who use drugs or, and I'm, and, uh, I, my favorite thing to say is, yes, I know when I was a drug addict, you know, I, I love to make people super uncomfortable with that. It's kind of my favorite, but you didn't do that. Right. You just probably, (laughs) Eight oh, I'd grab my pitchfork and my fire and I'd say, kill them all. No, I, I would, uh, I would do a, a, a nice little soft shoe into another conversation. Um, but in my body, the minute I heard it, I would just, I would get scared. You know, I would, fear would surface and I'd be like, oh my God. But you know, I look, you go through that 15 times over a five-year period and then you get really good at realizing oh they're they don't even suspect it don't worry i mean i had to get through i didn't have a college degree yet i'm 35 years old walking out of prison with no college degree a huge gap in my work history and i've never even sent an email right with these panic attacks so look 
I don't know. I just, I had a lot of stuff to get over. My options were very limited. I stayed focused and I was always hiding something. Here's something you don't know. I also had stage four cancer in that 10 years. And I, I think it's because of the concern and worry of hiding my story. Oh, I bet. I bet. I bet. Did you end up doing yeah. chemo? No, I, I went through chemo and radiation. And, uh, and it's a great story for another time, but it's, it, um, you know, I, I grew another startup. This is important for me to say, I didn't just get these positions, right? The way I got the vice president inside a $2 billion publicly traded company is I took a company from $1 million to $20 million and then took it to acquisition for the $2 billion company and came in through the back door, right? So there's no way I could walk in the front door, get my application and get that job. So I found a way every single time. I put two companies in Inc. Magazine's Fastest 500. So, and the reason I did it is because I needed them to point at. I needed them on my resume. And if anybody ever said, oh, why should we hire you? You kidding me? Right here. And it drove me to do all that. But I positioned myself in Silicon Valley to where if I walked into a job or a an, a, an opening, I already had the job. It was my choice. I didn't even bring a resume. Right. And that's the reputation right. I was forced to set up. Right. Right. That makes total sense. So what do you think would have happened? I don't know when you came out with everything, but what do you think would have happened had in, you know, after a little bit of success or, you know, midway through, let's say, had that bit, had you come out with that, but still had the value that you had? Do you think people would have, you know, do you think people would have kicked their moneymaker away aside because of that? I totally think a lot of people wouldn't be as rich as they are today. I totally think the world, there would be some startup companies that didn't make the list of Inc. Magazine's Fastest 500 because I wouldn't have gotten my shot. Now, I would love to believe that all of that's changed now in the last 15 years. I've been out for 15 years. I would love to think that all of that's changed now. And that people are more accepting and want to give people a chance. But I'm not sure Kyle Houston, before he ever went to prison, would take that chance. I think I would. And I'm going to sit here and tell you I would. But that's horseshit because I'm not faced with that consciousness and that decision. So here's what I will tell you. The first job I had knew I was a convict, knew that I was on parole. There was no getting around that because they wanted to come visit me at work, right? So, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So some of that, some of those, but but this is an important part of your question. Since the first one knew that I felt like I got extorted. I felt like the ceiling was very low. And this was a company that I worked my way up by just overachieving, overperforming, doing all the stuff nobody else wanted to do, inserting myself in meetings where nobody asked me to be, taking on jobs. I mean, everything. Can anybody do this? My hand's the first one up. I have no idea how to move a boat from South Africa to Miami, but I'm the guy. So, you know, I'm doing all that. And I, I found a way to get a position in the marketing department, but I wasn't getting paid very much. And I know it's because I was like lucky to be there. And that would have continued to happen every place I would have told them. So for me, I didn't want to know because I didn't want to be extorted. I wanted to be paid as the guy that I was, the one that was performing. That was critical to me. Right. No, that's an interest. That's also an interesting. Oh, I I I said two interesting things. I'm so glad Um, (laughs) I did that. Yay. 
I know. I use that word way too often. What led you to say, I can't do this anymore? Oh, this God. And this was me. a perfect moment. Um, so I pulled out, as soon as we took the company to acquisition, I put in my notice and I left my my really hard-earned career, just walked away and created a partnership with some baseball agents. And I'm really good at networking. If anybody wanted to know what the heck Kyle Houston can do. So yeah, we create this partnership and we've got a business put together and the partnership fails. It does a lot. And, and I start to realize that I had set up my life. And so my wife and I take over the business. Everything that we're doing is based on fear. I can't walk away. Reputation. What am I going to do? We don't have enough money to do. I mean, it's all these things that aren't even true. And I, I, one day, this is July of 2017, my wife and I are waking up every day with fear. And we don't want to answer the phone because it's just crazy. And I tell myself, this is all because I'm hiding everything. This is all because I'm, I'm making a mountain out of a molehill. And if I'm going to take back my life and I'm going to be the guy that I thought I was before the drugs, the guy that was ready to take on the world and strong and live fulfilled and do what I want and be proud, man, I'm going to have to tell people in a big way. And I started writing my book that day. And I didn't, my friends didn't even know. When I tell you nobody knew, nobody knew. Yeah, these are people. Oh my gosh, your friends didn't. I mean, I guess you have to, if you eat. Now my friends from high school had heard rumors, but now I'm out in San Francisco and I've got new friends and we're raising kids together and we're, you know, at the PTAs and everything. None of them knew. And and I tell myself, I'm going to have to tell them. So I, I start telling them one by one, one of the scariest things I've ever done. And everything just starts getting lighter and happier. And my love, there's nothing in between me and the people I love now. There's no secret. And the relationships get stronger and more open. And I start to get addicted to telling my story. And it's really funny. It's really (laughs) funny because I, you know, I, the way I created my success is leaning into fear, following fear. Fear is the trail to success. And, and so I, you know, I always did that, but the fear of telling was the one thing was the taboo that, that was the bomb that was going to kill me. Now I'm leaning into that fear. And it's funny that I go from creating a, a career where I hid all of that, like I hit it to the death to now creating a career where I tell all of that. And that, that was a shift that happened overnight. And it's, one of the best things that ever happened to me. I mean, between that moment in the cell by myself and telling the world about my past, those are the two biggest leaps in transformation for me. And I, I still, it's only been two and a half years. The book's coming out uh, August 7th. And I still entertain what that's going to do to my ability to raise funds with the VCs out. And you know what I mean? My ability to represent somebody's brand. But every time I think that way, I tell myself, Kyle, you're taking back your life. This is the only way to do it. And the reason you wrote the book is to help people. And the only way to do it is to go bees deep and make sure that they hear everything. This book is as raw and honest as I think anybody's ever written about drug addiction in prison. And me, I don't make myself look good. It's it's not going to help anybody. Yeah. What were the responses with your friends and, 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 and your, so the professional, professional, I didn't bother. uh, Right. I mean, I, I, 
I mean, I guess I've been employed since then, but when we took the company to acquisition, I had a big pile of money given to me and life was for a while, right? But we, the friends, after they picked their jaw up off the floor, just didn't care. I mean, they cared in the sense that I had to go through it and they understood why I didn't tell them, but they were all appreciative and they they just protected me. That's what they wanted to do. Yeah, it's um, my experience has been that when you show people who you are authentically, that as scary as it is, that people respond pretty well. I've I've I can't think of very many circumstances where the response has been negative, especially people who knew who got to know me before knowing any of that about me. And I think. I think that's actually a, a really big gift that you gave to a lot of those people, even in corporate America, in your community, because the opportunity to know somebody before they have that critical information allows them the grace to be able to let that judgment go, to change old ideas in a way that they may not have been able to do that had they known it up front. And by getting to know you and then adding that information in, you gave them a gift of not of of not wanting to judge for that, which which maybe that's something they'd never experienced of not wanting to judge someone for having. You know, you're right. They showed class. up with the preconceived notion that I'm a good guy that they love. Like that's a, that's a great place to start. And and these aren't just acquaintances; these are friends. These are people I loved, right? So, I mean, it's, I think that's important to understand, but still scary nonetheless. And um, it, I mean, I think about it regularly, which is, um, you know, about having the podcast and telling my story, having my story be out there. And it's it's super, super scary. And, I, and I've been doing it a long time and it's still Well, really you do scary. a great job of hiding all that fear. I think you you get you get to mingling with some uh, some recovering addicts and it's like ah yeah this guy gets it let's <laughs> let's talk about stuff I want to pull back later <laughs> yeah yeah right, right. I it's 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 actually one of those things where and you'll appreciate this which is I have committed myself to living authentically so much so that I'm not really capable of not doing it. I'm not, I don't really have that like fake it piece of me anymore that I used to be able to hide things. It's just not really there. So I also know, you know, I mean, I'm the friend where, uh, people call me and they ask me advice and I say to them, do you really want to know what I think? Because don't ask me what I think unless you really, I will tell you. And, and, and part of that is this, I spent so long, so many years trying to figure out who I was, trying to be someone else, somewhere else, doing something else. And in order to love who I am, I have to, I have to really embrace it. And doing that forces you to be yourself, whether, you know, that, that was kind of like the, the idea around the courage to change, right? It's like courage is based on scary shit that you do anyway, right? You're not, it's not courageous to do something that isn't scary, <laughs> Right. It's, it's courageous to do something that's terrifying and do it anyway. And so, you know, if we're doing that, then we got to show up and do it. And the fear that someone will judge us or not, you know, I have, I, it's funny. I have the similar fears around career stuff. Like what if I want to do something else that here's this pile of information about me and, you know, can I go work in corporate America without that being an issue? And can I go, 
you know, and I, and I, I feel like the best thing, the most important piece that we can do is to destigmatize and say like, you can have a past like this and still be valuable in all these arenas and it's okay. And to push the world and push, you know, maybe America in this case to see us as people and not right. a substance. Use and problem. that is the, that's the driving force of the next phase of my life. And you just described it to a T because when I got out, there's a lot of things that drove me, right? We talked about the fear and shame and all the bad stuff, right? The, the whip, but the carrots, I felt responsible to become wildly successful for the people that needed to see it. And the people that aren't addicts that need to understand it, it, nobody is disposable, right? And so I took all of that really, really seriously. And now it's time to find the people that need to hear this message on both sides of the coin, right? I, I need to find the people that feel hopeless or too old or you know lacking experience or nobody's going to give them the shot. And I need to show them, hey, look, it gets better. And then I need all the people that are judgmental that say, I'm not going to hire a convict because they're going to steal everything that I have. And how do I trust them? I'm going to say, hey, you need to understand I was a junkie, did seven years, I'm a five-time convicted felon. But oh, by the way, good luck finding somebody that's done what I've done as a sales executive. Right. It's true. It's true. And and I think it's just, it's so important for the the world to see these stories, to hear about these stories. And you know, I really do think that by infiltrating, which is what you did, <laughs> and um, infiltrating and, 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 and having people see you for what you were offering them at that period of time without the, without the other things involved. And then adding that back in, I think that's a huge, I think that's so valuable. I think that, you know, trying to come in with it would have had a different experience and you allowed people the opportunity to see something that, that they wouldn't, otherwise have seen. What has the pandemic and COVID been like for you in terms of triggers? Did, did it bring up anything for you having being forced to stay home or, you know, any of that stuff? Did that, did that? So I, um, I the short answer is no, didn't trigger anything. And I have to be really, really careful when I answer this, because I don't want to minimize what people are going through. But to me, I couldn't be happier. I do. I, and I, I don't know that I want to apologize for that, but I have, I have an eight-year-old and a 10-year-old. They're both girls. And I have a wife that I adore and we are together every single day, all day. And you may get a completely different response from them, but to me, it's, it's, um, it's a blessing. And yeah, I want to go out and I want to do stuff. And you know, my 50th birthday is in, it's July 7th and we were supposed to go to Europe and blah, blah, blah. And it's not going to happen, but I wouldn't trade that crap, which I can do later for all this time. I just slept with my eight-year-old in my bed last night, right? Like it's a big bunking party. It just feels really, really good. But I know people are going broke. I know people are getting triggered. I know people are sitting at home by themselves. They don't have the daughters and all of that stuff. And, you know, I, I just, I, I think that it needs to be over. It certainly needs to be over, but there's so much you can gain by what is going on right now. There's so many things that you're going to find out about yourself or your family or your partner that you would never get the chance to slow down and look at 
without this. There's so many things you're going to think you're going to find out about your beliefs in power structure, your beliefs in, you know, which political side are you really going to buy into and does it matter? And I mean, we're going to come out and we, I'm talking about the world, we're going to come out on the other side of COVID and quarantine. And we're going to be so much smarter, so much stronger, so much harder to control because we're going to be woke in a way that's important. My biggest hope for everybody is that we can quit fighting over liberals and conservatives and getting lost in all the shit that doesn't matter and really have a legitimate conversation about what's important. And I think this is going to happen. I really do. It's my biggest hope. And I mean, the most advice I can give to anybody right now is to embrace the idea that you were never in charge anyway. Embrace that because it's important to understand. And we as drug addicts, like we got a leg up on you in that department. But the truth is your health, your finances, the world, I mean, none of that stuff was under your control anyway. Turn to something that's important and start to figure yourself out. Okay. That's the biggest advice I can give you because you're not going to get a better chance. The only better chance you're ever going to get is become a meth addict, a meth cook, and face 30 years with no parole and get put in a single cell by yourself. But don't do that. I don't suggest it. This is second best. Yeah, I'll take COVID too. I mean, I'll take COVID. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's funny. I, I think I feel like it feels to me like we got put in a big timeout and the world got put in timeout. Like you're not listening. You're not listening to each other. You're not you know, you're not paying attention. You're moving too fast. You're, you know, all the things, all the different, you know, the chaos. And it was like, everybody's in timeout, <laughs> go to your room. Um, and, and it woke people up as, as, like you said, and I, you know, I, I, I too hope that we can stop arguing over those things and start, you know, it's, it's funny. I find myself, I have these, I have these liberal beliefs. I have these conservative beliefs. I have, I'm just like all over the map. And I, 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 find myself seeking like, well, I, but I'm neither, you know, and feeling left out and wanting to be wanting to feel passionately about one side or the other. And, and I like you, I'm like, can we just have a conversation? Can we just, can everybody just stop? And I do, I think that this is giving, if, if you're, if you're open to it, this is a huge opportunity to, you know, and I think that's really like with anything like prison that it didn't have to be an opportunity for you to do that work. It didn't have to be. You could have used that solitary time to go completely right. insane. I had options. Or kill yourself, right? So <laughs> it didn't, it didn't, you had, you had options. It didn't ha have to be, but it's it's really about what you want. And And I think anybody listening to this podcast is interested in those things and interested in like, how can I look at this from a different perspective to make my life better? And that's kind of where that, mental incarceration comes from. And I, I know certainly you know, and I'll just say this, you and know I'll say all about quick, that. I promise. But um, for me, I think the thing that gets overlooked is how stressful was your drive in the morning and how stressful was it to have to get ready and get up at a certain time? How stressful was it to need to be somewhere, to need to travel, to be away from the family, to that stuff just went to a halt. You should be thankful. And again, I don't want to minimize because I don't, I'm not in everybody's situation and I'm not suggesting that it's all as good as mine, but I don't have to be anywhere 
you know, to get super personal, I don't have to wear my pants almost all day, right? So I don't have to be anywhere. And yeah, I want to go some places and we can go out with our mask and do all that stuff. But the stress for me is at like the lowest it's ever been. And I feel fortunate to be going through what I'm going through personally with COVID, but I love my family. Yeah. Yeah. It's perspective too. It's, it's, uh, it's perspective. It's funny. My, um, one of my, I have three-year-old twin boys and one of them, I put on jeans and like a t-shirt that wasn't, you know, like a college t-shirt and and uh and my kid goes mommy why are you so dressed up and I was like oh no (laughs) I'm like okay COVID but it's true I mean there's so many there's you know it's really about kind of what we come back to is like do you want do you want to live I find that I have much more choice today than um I ever imagined about how I live and when I when I choose to be happy and I choose to be positive and I choose to be, make a a, a conscious decision to look in that direction that my life changes. And I can't even, I feel like I'm in a different world and I can't even explain that, but it changes my sobriety, changes my recovery and, and my relationships with everyone. And it sounds like that's something that you have worked really hard to, to get in your life. And, and I'd imagine that this is small potatoes compared to. Yeah, it's it's hard to say that. It. It's just it's um in the beginning I I I was thinking about the a recession. I was thinking about the economy. I was thinking about all those things, but it is small potatoes. I mean, if I can get a hold of myself and say, "Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me?" You know, I mean, the thing with me is you're not the only one, right? This is the most obvious situation where you're not the only one. You're not alone. You're not like, okay, maybe you are going broke or maybe your finances aren't getting better, but guess what? 7.6 billion people on the planet, almost all of them have the same problem. So this is life, right? And in some crazy way, that's comforting to know that I'm not the only one. And you're right. For me, I'm I'm on the verge of actually getting to a point to realize that it's all small potatoes, right? There was a there was a book out there. I'm going to screw up the name, but at one time, what was it called? It was uh, "Don't Sweat the Small Stuff." And by the way, it's all small stuff. And that's kind of where I'm I'm getting through this COVID experience. But I, but I know that's not everybody's experience. So I, I just want I I want to make sure I say that. And by the way, I also want to make yeah. sure I am I I do wear pants. Okay, yeah, I just want to make sure that gets said. It's important. All right, but I don't have to. That's the point. <laughs> the point is I don't have to. Well, oh, oh, that's what is the name yeah. of your book? Uh, the book. <laughs> Patchwork Junkie. Mm-hmm. Ta-da! Patchwork Junkie. I love it. Okay, Patchwork Junkie. August and 7th. It comes that's out right. August 7th. And um, can people can buy it Amazon. on they Amazon? Can they can also go to patchworkjunkie.com. And that's that's the best way to buy it. And it that'll route you to Amazon. So that is something that I I, I look just to put a little plug in there. I surrounded myself with very talented people. I wrote the book, I wrote every word, but I surrounded myself with talented people when it came to arranging it making sure the story is told in an eloquent way. And I could not be prouder 
of not only the way it's written, but what the message is all about. And it's exciting. It's exciting. As long as you don't mind cussing. I didn't. <laughs> this is the real world in this book. I got to tell you. I love it. I'm 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 the uh, I'm the one who I, like I need a swear. Jar well, you've disappointed me on I'm this podcast. Okay, I expected better out of you. Okay, I know, I know, I I know it. It's it's I, I we go back and forth because you're not supposed to, you get more coverage if your podcast is not explicit, and so what makes a podcast explicit is saying fuck, which I don't understand because the content of this podcast is explicit but you can make it not explicit just by the words you use so we go back and forth and we'll just like make an episode explicit and then not another one and so maybe i just need to go with it authentically and make it just go gary v on this thing man hey you you can sit here and talk about suicide and needles and you know uh sex and all sorts of stuff but then you turn around and say the bible and that makes it explicit Yep. That, that makes it explicit. That, that makes it explicit. I, I, it cracks me up. I'm like, anybody listening to this podcast, like it is, we are talking about like how to make (laughs) meth. You know, I want to know, I want to know what are the ingredients you're using for meth? Like, but that's that's not not explicit. explicit. I probably just just got another seven year bid (laughs) by talking about it. Thank you. Thank you for that. Oh no. Oh, you're welcome. Well, I think I I feel like everybody wants to know, but no one will ask. You know, it's one of those things. It's like, been a long time. Everybody, everybody it's been a long curious. time. I'm, I'm really glad yeah. that I remembered. Yeah. <laughs> now, I, bet, I bet it's not not, you'll not with the way forget. I told you I did it. Me, me, God, and the flask. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, it's I know. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Oh. Well, I I adore you Kyle. Thank you so much for uh coming on here and telling your truth and infiltrating Silicon Valley and showing them what that uh, you know, people who cook math can Well, thank you for having me on. I, I really mean that. And look, thank you for creating a platform where you help people get through what they're getting through. That's that's the most important thing and I will tell you and this is not lip service. What you do inspires me to push and do more because my plan is to just continue to um, to give with what I understand. And when I see you doing a podcast and I see you being so bubbly and intelligent and fun, it makes me want to go do the same thing. So great example. And I love what you do. I mean that. And I adore you. Thank you okay. Pat. There you have it. That. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, um, we will, we're going to put all the information for your book into the show notes and we'll put it out on social media. So everybody go to patchworkjunkie.com. And then I want to talk to you next year and see what you're doing and see what it's been like since, you know, with people finding out, you know, I, I'm sure it'll be Once a I'm whole rich new and famous. world of experiences. <laughs> uh, it, I'll be. Yeah. And well, th- there's one other thing I want to throw out there. Um, if anybody wants to follow me, it's everything is Kyle Dean Houston. So on Facebook, it's at Kyle Dean Houston and Instagram, it's at Kyle Dean Houston. We're working on a YouTube channel, but you know, it'll be Kyle Dean Houston. Everything's Kyle Dean Houston. So my website, uh, www.kyledeanhouston.com. So perfect. Kyle Dean Houston. You heard it here. You also have three names. So there you go. Okay. Kyle Dean We will put that in the show notes as well. Awesome. 
Well, thank you so much. And uh, we look forward to your book. I will absolutely buy it and read it. Take care of yourself. And uh, we will talk to you soon. This podcast is sponsored by Lion Rock Recovery. Lion Rock provides online substance abuse counseling where clients can get help from the privacy of their own home. They are accredited by the Joint Commission and sessions are private, affordable, and user-friendly. Call their free helpline at 800 258 6550 or visit www.lionrockrecovery.com for more information.